I, I, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to try. I'm going to bring it in. I'm going to bring it in. <laughs> All right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Steve. Thank you. Yeah, it's good, it's good to be seen. Um, today we're going to be reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Matthew, chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we finally gotten to the New Testament. Uh, if you're new around here, uh, you've already heard this morning what we've been doing for the last eight months is reading the whole Bible together. And so each Sunday what we do is we just, we pause for a moment and we consider one of the passages that we've read together over the last week. And so today, that brings us to the voice that we've been longing to hear since we began, our beloved Lord Jesus. And we're going to sit for a while under what is arguably his most famous teaching, uh, or at least part of it, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's hard to find a more fundamental teaching from our Lord about what it means to be his disciple than the verses I just read and the larger context in which they sit. And so let me just summarize what Jesus is about to teach us. And it's essentially this. If you are to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must possess perfect righteousness. If you are to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must possess perfect righteousness. And I know what you're thinking, that can't be what he actually teaches. But it very much is what he taught, and I want to show you how that is at once the occasion for great despair and the only hope on which we rest to enter the kingdom of God. So in order to do that, let's look at uh, this whole teaching under three headings. First of all, the problem of righteousness. Second of all, the demand of righteousness. And then third, the fulfillment of righteousness. So the problem, the demand, and the fulfillment. Let's begin with the problem of righteousness. And let's return to the passage that we read at the beginning See if we can understand the problem as Jesus puts it to us. Verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So we begin with Jesus making these sweeping claims about the Old Testament law, namely that he has not come to do away with it, but to fulfill it. And this is important because there's a great temptation among Christians today to believe that because Christ came, the law of Moses no longer has any claim on our lives. 
But look closely. And precisely the, the temptation is that because Christ came, the law of Moses no longer has any relevance to anything. But let's look. He actually says the opposite of that. He says, he, he, he does acknowledge that the law is temporary for sure. It, it does have an expiration date. But did you see what the expiration date was? It says, until heaven and earth pass away. So, it's a very common question among Christians, is the law still binding on us? And Jesus has a very simple diagnostic. Look around. Is the earth still spinning on its axis? The answer is yes. The law is still around. The law is still binding. Now, to be fair, there is some nuance lacking in that answer, but we'll get back to that later. Now, for at where we are at this point, this serves as a corrective to anyone who would divide God and his personality and his character between, you know, the God of the Old Testament who's wrathful and cranky and capricious and con contrast that with the God of the New Testament who's loving and compassionate, giving everybody a hug. Jesus comes right in and rejects that division and he teaches us right away that there is continuity between God in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The law remains, Jesus says, until heaven and earth pass away down to the smallest iota, down to the smallest dot. Okay, now what does that even mean? And why does it matter for what we're talking about? Well, he goes on, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, he mentions the kingdom of heaven twice. Uh, sometimes in other Gospels, he phrases it as the kingdom of God. And the, and the temptation for those who believe that Jesus came to do away with the law is that we're, we're going to relax the demands of the law. But what's the problem here? Well, Jesus is emphatic. He says that the reward for keeping the law is entry into the kingdom of heaven. Now, if the kingdom of God is the reward, then we need to understand why it's so desirable. The kingdom of God is, it's, it's what every Jew of Jesus' day longed for. It was the subject of all their desires, all their hopes. If you read the prophets with us, you'll remember that they were constantly talking about the kingdom of God. Essentially, it's the, the reign of God, the dominion of God come to earth. It's the age when our history comes to an end. And in the everlasting kingdom, justice is finally done. All the evils that have been committed in history in our history, will finally be remedied from the genocides of Nazi Germany and Mao's China all the way down to the wickedness done to each individual that has caused you untold grief and sorrow. And more than that, when God's kingdom comes, death will be no more. Nor will there be any suffering or occasion for weeping or pain or sorrow. In other words, the arrival of God's kingdom is the fulfillment of every longing that a child of God has. 
Christ shall reign eternally in his kingdom, and he will be the great object of our love and worship, world without end. And if that's the reward for which we all long, then we need to pay attention to Jesus here because he's telling us exactly how to gain entrance. What is that? Righteousness. The only way to gain entry into the everlasting kingdom of God is righteousness. And righteousness according to the law. Now, if that depresses you, it's okay. It's about to get worse. If you paid attention to the verses I just read, it says whoever relaxes the commandments uh, versus whoever keeps them, their least or greatest in the kingdom. You said, that doesn't talk about getting into and out. It just talks about the gradations of honor within the kingdom. Okay, so let, let, me, let me try to prove it. Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There it is. Righteousness. Unless it exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in case you don't know, the scribes and the Pharisees were like the, the paragons of the law in Jesus' day. Like no one possessed more righteousness according to the law than them. In fact, they were so fastidious about keeping the law that they even created new laws so that they would never even come close to breaking the actual law. Like boundaries upon boundaries upon boundaries. That's how concerned they were that they would keep the law. And Jesus breaks our hearts when he says this, if you would enter the kingdom of God, the object of all your longings, of all your desires, where justice will be done, where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, if you want that, then your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And there's no equivocation. Like, there's no equivocation here. He says, he doesn't say like, if you're pretty good, you might have a shot. See how it all shakes out in the end? No. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, arguably the most righteous lot on earth, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, let's, let's go one step further. If the kingdom of God is what the hearts of the faithful long for, and righteousness is the means by which we enter, then it's going to be very important for us to understand what righteousness actually is. For many of us, we hear the word righteousness and we immediately think about right behavior, which is to say we act according to all that God has revealed. And that, that's true. That's absolutely true. But that's only a secondary definition. When it comes right down to it, righteousness means this. And listen, listen. Righteousness means acceptance. To be righteous means fundamentally to be acceptable in God's sight. 
and understood in that light, isn't righteousness something that we all long for? Like, even outside the realm of church and faith and all that, doesn't it get right at the wellspring of all of your desires to be found acceptable in the sight of another? For them to look upon you in all of your triumphs and all of your disasters and say, even so, I love you. You are acceptable in my sight. And many of us spend our entire lives just trying to find one person who will say that to us with conviction and dead earnestness in their eyes. And the tragedy is that so few of us really do find that. But regardless, we pine for it. We long for it. We want acceptance, which is another way of saying we pine for righteousness. And if we can be found righteous in God's sight, then we will have that for which our hearts have always longed, namely the kingdom of God. And truth be told, this is, <laughs> that's why this saying of Jesus can be so disheartening. What I've just described, this is the problem of righteousness. We long to enter into the everlasting kingdom of God, but the entrance fee is far beyond anything we could ever afford, which is to say a righteousness beyond the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay. In order to further depress you, let's try to understand what a righteousness beyond the scribes and Pharisees would actually look like. And for that, we'll go to the second point, the demand of righteousness. Now, Jesus said he didn't come to relax the law. And in fact, what we're about to see next is not merely Jesus affirming the law, but he's actually cranking up the heat on it and intensifying the law and its demands. Here is what a righteousness beyond the scribes and Pharisees would look like in a series of six brief teachings that he gives us. And, you know, look, each of these would require a whole sermon to really expound, and we're only going to consider each of them briefly. So just know there's a lot more to say on all of these, but, you know, here, here they are. First, Matthew 5, verse 21 trying to find out what does a righteousness beyond the scribes and Pharisees look like because we, we want that righteousness. Okay, here we go. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, right out of the gate, Jesus intensifies the law about murder. I would, I would think that most of us feel pretty good about the state of our righteousness because we never killed a guy. And, that, and by the way, I'm not, <laughs> that's good. Let's, let's all keep with that standard. But Jesus says, that's not enough. He says that the seed and root and sprout of murder is anger. And thus, everyone who is angry with another will earn the very same judgment as the murderer would. So I'm just going to go ahead and guess that for everyone in here, you know, including this guy, this teaching is going to count as a demerit 
against our righteousness. But then he goes on, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so here Jesus does the same thing with adultery that he does with murder a second ago. Many of us count ourselves righteous because, you know, at least whatever marital problems we have, at least we haven't committed the ultimate sin against our spouse. But Jesus doesn't let us escape so easily from the law. He teaches that's not even enough. Even to look lustfully upon a woman has already earned us the same judgment that adultery would earn us. Again, another demerit for our righteousness. Well, let's keep going. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. <laughs> like I said, all of these deserves a full sermon. But we're just going to focus on the fact that Moses permitted divorce. And in Matthew 19, Jesus expands on this teaching to tell us the reason that Moses did so was not because divorce was an acceptable practice according to the creation order. That's not how God created things, but because of their hardness of heart. So the permission for divorce was a concession to the hardness of heart of the people. But Jesus removes all of those concessions except for one. So here again, he is intensifying the demands of the law. Again, the teaching on Jesus, or excuse me, the teaching on divorce in the New Testament is much more nuanced than what I'm communicating here. So I just need to acknowledge that and move on. Now, verse 33. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform what the Lord, perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. So again, in the law of Moses, oaths were permitted. To take an oath meant that you were vouching in the name of God that the claim that you were making with your mouth was true. We even do this in our court system, right? I mean, before a testimony is given, uh, we require a person to go under oath. But why do we do this? And why do the people of Moses' time do this? It's because we, we know human beings lie. Furthermore, we know that it's very easy for a human, to being, a human being to lie when the stakes get higher and higher. But Jesus is saying here, don't take an oath. Live your life in such a way that your yes really means yes and your no really means no. Let your life be so defined by honesty that you never even need to take an oath. Then he goes on. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, Moses taught that retributive justice was proper among God's people. If someone gouges out your eye, 
then their punishment shall be the same. That sounds brutal, but it really just means that the punishment fits the crime. We would agree with that. If someone is on trial for murder, the evidence clearly condemns him. It would be an outrage if he was found guilty and his sentence was, you know, 20 hours of community service. That's not justice. Justice demands that the punishment fit the crime. And under the law of Moses, this balance is what the law provided for. And to give what was given was considered righteous in line with justice. But Jesus, and by the way, (laughs) that was righteousness. Like to deal out what one had received. And, And if you were doing that, you're considered righteous. I mean, that, that's according to the law. But Jesus completely shatters our hope of that kind of righteousness, even though it really appeals to us. He says, in the kingdom of God, righteousness is earned not by balancing the scales of justice, but by allowing those scales to dip further against you. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, don't rise up and slap them on the right cheek which is what Moses taught. Turn instead the other cheek and offer it to their hand as well. If someone forces you to walk one mile, walk two. This is your standard for righteousness, Jesus says. And I know I said I wasn't going to preach a sermon on all of these, but I do have to say this. Um, Jesus is teaching his disciples here. This is an ethic for the Christian community. And I feel like I have to say that because in our culture, we have so, for so long and so easily conflated our faith with the structures of our nation that we naturally object to this kind of teaching because, you know, how could a political state survive if it just turned the other cheek to all of its enemies? The answer is it can't. And Jesus is talking to disciples here. He's not talking to states. This is how we are to live in the Christian community. But even with that misunderstanding out of the way, this is not good news for our righteousness. Remember, Jesus is teaching us how to become acceptable in God's sight. And here he tells us that we must endure insult. We must endure suffering without retaliation. And even more than that, to endure more of it. It's an impossible standard. And it may be that through all that teaching so far, maybe, I'd like your autograph if so, maybe your righteousness has has managed to keep its nose above the water through all of this. But in the next teaching, Jesus plunges all our hopes for righteousness to the bottom of the sea. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you, do, are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, 
must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, to be clear, the perfection that Jesus is speaking of here is about equity with regards to love. God shows kindness both to his people and to his enemies by granting both of them rains in their seasons and the the rising and the setting of the sun. And Jesus says that if we are to possess righteousness in order to be found acceptable in God's sight, we must likewise be perfect, which is to say to love and show kindness to those who hate us with the same energy, creativity, speed, as we show love to those who love us. So that is what a righteousness beyond the scribes and Pharisees look like, looks like. That's how we earn our righteous standing before God. Those are the steps we follow all of our lives so that in the end, God will look at us and find us acceptable in his sight. And if you want to enter the kingdom of God, then you have to go beyond the demands of the law as they are written. You you must never become angry. You must never look upon a woman lustfully. You must never tell a lie. You must be always truthful. You must never retaliate, but instead invite more suffering onto yourself. And you must always love your friends and your enemies with the exact same love. And that is not good news. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus is teaching. So where does that leave us? Are we without hope? Do we leave this place in despair and just commit ourselves to the ethics of Ecclesiastes? Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die? No. There is hope. Let me show you. We'll move to the fulfillment of righteousness. Now, the problem of righteousness, as we looked at in the beginning, is an unsolvable puzzle. The demand of righteousness is so great that none of us could hope to be found righteous or acceptable in God's sight. Rather, we find ourselves condemned in God's sight. But the hope is how Jesus began this teaching. And let's remind ourselves of it. Verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. Jesus Christ came into this world not to condemn us for our faltering righteousness. He came into the world to earn a righteousness for himself. Jesus Christ is the one who never allowed unrighteous anger to pierce his heart. Jesus Christ is the one who never looked upon a woman lustfully, but always looked upon her as befitting of her dignity as a created child of God. Jesus Christ is the one who never needed to take an oath because his yes 
always meant yes, and his no always meant no, and he was the very embodiment of truth. Furthermore, Jesus Christ is the one who never retaliated, but always loved his enemies. Even after they perverted justice to condemn him falsely, he was as silent as a lamb going to the slaughter. Even as they put the cross on his back after he was wounded and bleeding from a Roman flogging, he made no objection and carried the device of his execution to Golgotha. Even when they laid laid him upon that cross and drove spikes through his flesh into the wood, he cried out, not for justice, but for the forgiveness of his enemies. And even when they hurled insults at him in the final hours of his life as he was dying, he received them without an answer. And that earned him the reward of perfect righteousness. Everything that we just read in his teaching in Matthew chapter 5, he himself accomplished. But in the end, something happened that was altogether unexpected. Remember, the reward for righteousness, the reward for perfection is to enter the kingdom of God to be found acceptable in God's sight. But at the end, the righteous one, the one who had earned this acceptance, the one who had earned his way into the everlasting kingdom of God, was abandoned by his Father in heaven. The sky grew black and his, his cry of dereliction tore through the sky. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he bowed his head and breathed his last and gave up his spirit as one condemned. Now what in the world is going on here? What's going on here is the fullness and substance of our hope. And nobody explains this clearer than the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order, listen, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus Christ earned the righteousness according to the law that we could never earn. And he did that not so that he could keep it for himself, but so that he could give it away to all who believe in his atoning death and resurrection. But he also died the death of judgment that each of us lawbreakers should have died. And in that way, a great transfer has occurred. We received his righteousness. He received our condemnation. See, Jesus, as he taught us, did not come to remove the law. Rather, Jesus Christ came to remove the curse of the law. So the law remains... And it's not a means any longer of earning righteousness. The righteousness has already been earned. 
The curse for disobedience has been fully satisfied in the body of Jesus Christ. And because none of us could ever earn this righteousness for ourselves, he offers it freely to all who put their faith in him. And Paul also teaches us that every one of us, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ in the end. And condemnation awaits, listen to this, condemnation awaits everyone who walks into that court standing on their own righteousness because it is and must always be incomplete. And the entrance into the kingdom of God requires perfection. But to be a Christian means this, that when we enter that court and all the evidence of our failures and our iniquities and the pain that we have caused others is recorded on the ledger, and made plain to the watching congregation, we shall rise up with our heads held high. Not in shame, but in triumph. And we shall say this, all that has been said of me is true, but I do not hope to be acceptable on the merit of my own righteousness. I claim the righteousness of another the lion and the lamb, the lamb, the savior, and my Lord, Jesus Christ. And at that, at that, the Father will look upon us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are acceptable in my sight. Enter into the everlasting joy that has been prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Now, we come to the table, as we always do, each and every week. And this bread and this cup are a reminder that we are made righteous and thus acceptable in the sight of God based on the merit of another. The body was broken, the blood was spilled, so that our sins could be forgiven and we might be found acceptable in God's sight, beloved and everlastingly cherished. So as you eat and as you drink, preach that to yourself. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I don't know what else to say. Who are we that you should love us like this? The storehouses of your grace and kindness are beyond all our reckoning. And so will you grant us the grace to believe that Christ's righteousness is enough, that that righteousness overflows our cups. And by his righteousness, we are made acceptable in your sight. And we love you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may eat and you may drink. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ.